May I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Last year, London saw a 40% drop in new HIV infections. This week, we're finding out why. Plus, in the news, how seagrasses could be a rich source of new antibiotics, the trick that scientists have learned from spiders about making strong materials, and why commuters are buzzing about drones in Dubai. I'm Kat Arney. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. For years, we have abused the oceans and used them as dumping grounds for everything from plastics and chemicals to industrial waste and even raw sewage. This is having a devastating effect in some areas by causing bacteria to thrive, which is killing off fish and corals, and it's also increasing the odds of humans becoming unwell. Now, scientists have discovered that the sea might have its own solution in the shape of seagrasses, which come with their own inbuilt water cleansing system. From Cornell University, Drew Harville. Seagrasses are flowering plants, so just like our grasses on land, they have little flowers and they produce seeds, which then are sexually produced and start new plants. They also can clonally produce, so vast meadows can spread really quite quickly. Seagrass beds are the base of the food chain in the ocean. Uh, they provide critical nursery area for baby fishes and forage fishes, which are you know, our big fish like salmon and even killer whales eat. They also do a lot of filtering of coastal pollution and even absorb carbon dioxide. So seagrass meadows are considered a source of what we call blue carbon in the sense that they can absorb a lot of carbon dioxide and thus potentially mitigate uh, ocean warming impacts. And what have you been asking in this present study about seagrasses? Well, in this study, we wanted to focus on the filtration services of seagrasses and their capability to reduce uh, bacteria in the water in areas where there was very high sewage pollution. We worked on these four islands in Indonesia that were very large sources of sewage pollution, and we examined how the levels of bacteria changed as the water passed over the seagrass beds. And uh, this was done by my postdoc, uh, Jolie Lam, in collaboration with Indonesian scientists that we've been working with. And they both studied particular species of bacteria, which is the one that we in the United States use for testing the quality of our waters, uh, the Entrococcus. And then when they found a large impact of the Entrococcus, they went and completely sequenced all of the bacteria in the water and showed large reductions in Uh, multiple pathogens that could affect humans as well as fishes and invertebrates. So in a nutshell, where you see seagrass, you see fewer nasty bacteria. Exactly. There's a big difference in the levels of bacteria that have passed over the seagrasses, right? And so we think of them as a possible mitigation for sewage pollution or or a way to, you know, make the water cleaner and healthier. How much of a, a difference was there? in terms of the bacterial burden in the water when you compare areas that have got a lot of seagrass with those that haven't? At some of these sites, 
there were levels of potentially pathogenic marine bacteria that impact humans, fishes, and invertebrates that were reduced by 50% when the seagrass meadows were present compared to sites without seagrass meadows. And how do you think the seagrass is doing that then? That's really one of the exciting frontiers for our future work. We're very excited to work out what are called the mechanisms by which seagrass are removing bacteria. One possibility is a lot of the animals that live in the seagrass, such as the clams, the bivalves, the sponges, are filter feeders, and they're directly sucking up uh, bacteria themselves. But we also think that the seagrasses can detoxify or remove the bacteria. For example, seagrasses produce oxygen, and a lot of these bacteria can't live with oxygen, and so that's an important mechanism of detoxification. And then finally, there are the microbiome of the seagrass. The bacteria that live on the surface of the seagrass can also kill other bacteria. And so there are a range of these different mechanisms that we're investigating. Do you think then that it might be worth probing seagrass to see how they're doing this and whether there might be some potential untapped resource in there that we could use for making humans healthier. So, you know, we know that we're facing an antibiotic apocalypse where there are just not drugs for some of these infections anymore. Do you think seagrass might have lurking in it a solution? Oh, that's such a great question. Uh, There's so much potential for innovation in the way that we deal with our pathogenic bacteria in our society. And of course, we should be looking to natural sources like like the oceans and seagrasses. So yes, for example, there's a bacterium that lives on seagrasses that kills harmful algal blooms. So likely there are some bacteria that live on seagrasses that could also kill other bacteria. So that's a very exciting frontier for discovery. Certainly is, isn't it? That was Drew Harville from Cornell University, and she published that study this week in the journal Science. Now, from the bottom of the sea to the giddy heights of air travel, Dubai announced trials this week of a drone with a difference. It's designed to carry a person around. The drone is scheduled to begin operating in July. But how will it work? And is this the future of travel? To discuss it, we're joined by our tech expert, Peter Cowley. Hi, Peter. Hello. Good evening, Kat. So... I'm familiar with drones in the sort of small quadcopter kind of things that you can fly around and take photos of the tops of your friends' heads and things like that. So how does this drone carry a person? What's it like? Well, it it is obviously considerably bigger than the ones you've seen. You can actually get vertical takeoff drones, effectively using propellers that will carry up to over 200 kilos now. So all this to do is is the amount of power. It's effectively a drone is is a helicopter, isn't it? So and helicopters can carry very much more than that. So yeah, this drone will apparently carry 100 kilos uh, for 23 minutes at about 60, 70 miles an hour, and then after a two-hour charge, can do it again. So yeah, there's certainly the capability in engineering capability to build these. So uh, the next big question, obviously, because this sounds like the commuter solution of choice, uh, who would actually pilot this thing and and how does it not crash, presumably if there's other drones around? Exactly. Yeah. The um, Well, in fact, other people are working on ones with pilots, but of course the whole point of this one is there isn't a pilot, so you don't need to know how to fly. So the idea is it's autonomous so that it takes off from a certain point, programmed into a map and it lands somewhere else. Uh, apparently you can press a button to, to cause a sort of an emergency hover, but of course that would be pretty frightening, isn't it? Just sitting there expecting. To, um, it's like getting a, stuck on a Ferris wheel is bad enough. <laughs> so the, apparently there's a control centre. So if something goes wrong, they'll take it over. But it, otherwise, it's automatic. 
like any device, you know, whether it's an autonomous car which is coming up, there'll be loads and loads of sensors avoiding buildings. It's actually easier in many ways to be safe in three dimensions than it is in two dimensions because it's a lot less cluttered. So you can go up and over any problems that you see in your way. Correct. That's the idea. Exactly. I mean, I guess this is building on the the robotic transport we have now. I mean, there are tube lines in London that effectively drive themselves. Not that many people know that. Uh, yes, that's right. Um, the operator there is permanently just opening the door, say, on Dockland Light Railway. But you still have need a human on there. The Gatwick and Stansted Expresses are uh, driverless completely. But, of course, that's a very short line. There was actually, a, a few years ago, a 20-seater jet flew to 500 miles in the UK with the pilots on the ground. So... But this, in this case, it's autonomous. I mean, the really big question is, is this safe? And also, you know, is it legal, but is it safe? Well, the legal bit, who knows, because I, I had a quick check of the Dubai rules, and they're pretty similar to the UK and, and uh, US rules, which means you do need a pilot. Is it safe? They Apparently, they've got eight propellers, and they say that four's enough. Who knows? And in fact, I've looked on the website, various websites, and I can't find one where they're demonstrating it with a human inside it. Um, you know, would I fly in it? Probably not from this, this Chinese company. But if, um, you know, one of the big, say, BMW or something produced one two or three years in after that people have been using it, I'm sure I would. I mean, this is the thing, is that we see these incredible ideas, you know, Amazon are going to start delivering uh, things that you've ordered online. There are now food delivery drones that will go around at street level. Is any of this really practical or is this a bit of just a marketing stunt? No, in this case, this is probably just marketing this first one, but it's definitely the future. There's no doubt we will end up with flying vehicles doing things, whether it's delivering parcels, pizzas or people, really. So, yeah, it's just there's a whole load of legislative changes, a whole load of societal changes that people will accept it. But give it a few years and we will get them. They'll gradually come in. If you move forward a decade or two, I'm sure we will have the sort of future science fiction films that we've seen for many years starting to appear, those, those sort of vehicles. I mean, this is the sort of thing that we've talked before on the programme about when we've talked about cybersecurity, the Internet of Things, that there is a problem with the legislation not keeping up with the technology. I mean, are people in transport departments, in government, really starting to think seriously about this? Uh, they are, all over the place. And some of the states are more advanced than other ones, and I suspect Dubai, because that's a very advanced, you know, they've, they've got off the reliance on oil over the last, what, 30 years or so. Uh, everybody's working on, on this. Of course, there's some pushback, and, there's, um, and, and it's only going to be the early adopters who will use it, but there is a lot of discussion. And the big one, of course, is artificial intelligence and robots. How is that going to affect our, our roles in life? What, what, how are we going to occupy our time in 30 years' time if it's all being done by a software or a hardware robot? Thank you very much. That's Peter Cowley. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Kat Arney and Chris Smith. Still to come, would an Elizabethan understand what we're saying in this show and the treatment that can cut HIV transmission rates by nearly half? Before we get all Shakespearean, though, spiders. Now, feared by some, their silk is nevertheless about five times stronger than steel, which makes them very interesting in our quest to engineer cheap, strong materials. And this week, scientists have put one of America's most dangerous spiders under the microscope to discover the secret of how it makes its particularly strong web. They discovered that by adding little loops, it can make a strong and stretchy material, which is much less likely to break under stress. Using the same technique, we could engineer super-tough, flexible materials in the future. Georgia Mills spoke to Hannah Schneep from the College of William and Mary in Virginia. The specific spider we're working with is the 
brown recluse spider, which is actually quite in, in famous in the United States because it has a very bad bite and it has a quite dangerous venom. So a lot of uh, people in the United States know about the brown recluse spider, but we actually like to feature some of its really interesting properties. So the silks of most spiders, they're really cylindrical, um, just like a, like a hair. But the silk of the brown recluse spider, if you look at it under the microscope, it just looks uh, like a piece of, of sticky tape. This flat ribbon shape allows the spider to take this uh, silk and form it into loops. And these loops makes the material really extraordinarily tough. And that makes it a better material for the spider in order to, to capture prey. Why would loops make it tougher? Yeah, that's really the, the very interesting thing and very puzzling. But what actually happens is that, first of all, because the silk is so sticky, these loops that the spider makes, they're, they're closed loops and they have relatively strong uh, loop junctions or joints. And if you start pulling on the material at some point, these loops, they can actually open and release some additional length of the material. So that means you start stretching the material, and as soon as you reach the critical force that's required to open one of the loops, the length that's stored in this loop is released, and then the silk fiber is relaxed a little bit. And then you stretch it again until the next loop opens, and so on and so on. And in this process, you stretch and release the material many, many times. And that is just something that takes a lot of energy, and that's what we call, we material scientists call toughness. Oh, wow. So then the poor uh, fly or whatever it is they eat, it's got so many loops to break, as it were. It's just going to take too much energy to actually cut through one of these fibers. That is correct. Isn't that absolutely fascinating? We we sometimes think of it as the, the ultimate barbed wire, right? So you have an incredibly sticky material, which is at the same time also one of the strongest materials that we have. And so if, if really a, a poor little creature gets stuck in there, there's there's no way out. <laughs> Oh dear. And so can we, I mean, can we take this? What kind of applications could this tough material have? For instance, if you think like if you're, um, if you're jumping down and you, you wear a parachute, then you want to open the parachute. Uh, and at the moment when you open, there's an enormous amount of um, force that goes into the cord that holds the parachute. So there we could build um, or use a material that has such loops built in to make it a little bit more stretchier and better at absorbing the energy without breaking. We've also thought about to protect the structure from impact, let's say, of weapons that might be useful. Or you could think about if you have a structure in space where you have space debris or like micrometeorites flying around at very high velocities, you could think about making a web of such materials around these structures to to protect them from such high energy objects. I love that image of spider's web in space hoovering up all the meteors and things. Spider silk is incredible, but it is, as you mentioned, tiny. Do you think it's going to be feasible to scale this up to such an extent that it's actually useful to us? Well, in a way, actually, we scaled this up. And because we were so fascinated by this, we, we thought, wow, is this real? Because it's it's so surprising that this works. So we also developed uh, mathematical models to simulate the kinds of energy gains that we would get from a material like this. And the first thing we did is we just went to the drawer in our lab and took a piece of sticky tape. And then we just manually put a loop into the sticky tape. 
And then we tested this tape as you test any material. We put it in a mechanical tester and we measured the energy that it takes to break this material. And we indeed found out that even with one single loop, we increased the energy that this can absorb by about 30%, which is totally in line with our predictions. So that means if we find out a way to have many loops in there, we could actually increase the toughness or the ability of the material to, to absorb energy tremendously. And with this simple example, you can see it does not necessarily have to be at the micro or nanoscale uh, to make this work. So there you go. You see, just when someone says they're into web design, it doesn't mean cat they only work on computers. That was Hannah Schneep, and he was speaking with Georgia Mills. The work was published in Material Horizons. And now it is time for our weekly myth conception. This week, Greer Jackson has been enjoying some fava beans and a nice Chianti <laughs> while investigating whether we can trust Hollywood's depiction of psychopaths. There's a particularly chilling scene in a film which has always stuck with me. Hannibal Lecter sorting the prefrontal lobe of Paul Krendler's brain in white wine and shallots. In my eyes, Hannibal the Cannibal is the ultimate villain because A. He's exceptionally skilled at killing people and feels no remorse or empathy. Ergo, you can't barter your way out of this one. B. He has this distinguished career further revealing his ability to eat people. Oh, and not to mention, he's highly intelligent and can outsmart everyone in the FBI. A plus B plus C means once Hannibal's got his eye on you, your toast, possibly served with a side of quince jelly. The idea that psychopaths like Hannibal exist is terrifying, and even more so given the fact that some scientists think they make up 1% of the population. Think about how many people you've met over your life. Statistically, you're going to have met a few. That weird guy on the tube, your highly manipulative ex-girlfriend, and, depending on how much you like your job, your boss. The thing is, a meta-analysis looked at 187 papers charting psychopathy and intelligence and found no evidence that psychopaths are smarter. The study looked at those with esteemed careers as well as those in prison. And you know what they found? Psychopaths, in fact, scored significantly below average on intelligence tests. So if intelligence isn't one of the key traits of a psychopath, then what is? First and foremost, let's just have a look at what psychopathy is. It's a personality disorder, and because of that, it falls on a spectrum, much like age and height. It's commonly diagnosed using a 20-part checklist. In the States, if you score 30 out of 40, you're deemed a psychopath. And in the UK, it's a little lower. The cutoff is 25. This checklist measures a number of traits, which includes things like callousness, insincerity, selfishness, an inability to plan for the future or accept responsibility for your actions, overconfidence, impulsivity and violence. Turn all those traits up to maximum, like sliding up all the inputs on our mixing desk in the studio here, and you're a psychopath. However, turn up a few and you might have some psychopathic traits but it doesn't make you a psychopath. And what's more is that researchers from Oxford University have actually found you may be more successful in your career if you have some of these traits. Those diagnosed as a psychopath commonly have a different brain structure with deficiencies in the amygdala and the orbital frontal cortex. 
These two areas are associated with emotions and decision-making. Which makes sense if you think back to that long list of traits before. The callousness, the selfishness, the inability to plan for the future, the confidence, the manipulation. And whilst it's those traits that make psychopaths seem cleverer than they are, statistically speaking, they're not. It's a facade, which means if Hannibal the cannibal does break through our TV screens into reality, you can rest assured it's unlikely he'll be able to outsmart the FBI forever. Greer Jackson there. And if you've got any suspicious science or perhaps another myth that Hollywood has been perpetuating that you'd like us to probe, do email us at chris at nakedscientist.com. The British National Corpus is a collection of of over 100 million words from samples of written and spoken English. But 90% of it is written down and that limits what we can do with it. So, two years ago, a collaboration between Cambridge University Press and Lancaster University set about bringing the corpus into the 21st century. Emma Sackville heard how from Cambridge University Press's Senior Language Research Manager, Dr Claire Denbury. Typically when we recorded people's conversations in the past, you would have a massive tape recorder and you'd put it on the table and press the button and usually there'd be somebody else there, sort of like this, kind of like this, (laughs) so that the conversation was typically a bit self-conscious. So what we did actually was ask people to make recordings on their smartphones or their tablet or whatever. It kind of became part of the conversation. People didn't really realise that they were being recorded. So what that's meant is that the recordings that we've gathered are really natural. So we've got all kinds of like really interesting topics. So what have been some of the applications? What are you collecting this data for? Yeah. So here at Cambridge University Press, we're really interested in um, language teaching. So we want to know that we're teaching learners the best stuff, the things that are the most useful. More widely, though, the whole of the um, data set will be publicly available to any researcher. And there's so many... I think, really fascinating questions we can ask. Also, one thing that I think is really nice is that if someone had prompted you the question, you know, how do you feel about the environment? You'd say, oh, I'm very concerned about the environment. But actually, because this is a kind of free, unprompted collection of language, what we can also see is the topics that people are interested in. So there's a kind of wider sort of social implication as well. Um, And what have been the main or sort of most surprising trends or differences in words? So initially we had quite a light-hearted look at stuff. So we were interested in which words had kind of gone up in frequency, which words had gone down. So we found stuff like we talk about tea, almost exactly the same amount as we used to before. Obviously it's a massive concern. Um, (laughs) We looked at the word love. In the 90s we find that people love their family and their their brothers and their mum. And um, in our recent collection, people love handbags and cheese. (laughs) That's kind of sad. Yeah, but language changes and really what what we're saying there is that the word love is used differently. So really, that's a nice example that reflects how language has changed. So even in 25 years, there's been a pretty big difference in how we use language. Which got me thinking, we would be able to recognise language from the 90s, even if we might cringe at the hair and the fashion. And forsooth, my dear friends, we can work out the words in a merry eve of Shakespeare... But if we went really far back, would we be able to understand English? And if it comes to it, where did language even come from in the first place? My name is Mariana Bozic. I'm a university lecturer and I do research in the field of aspects of language comprehension. How do we process language in the brain? 
So the current view is that there are two joint but functionally distinct networks. So one being bihemispheric networks, both left and right hemispheres. That is a network for essentially basic comprehension, so mapping sound to meaning. And then on top of that, we have the left hemisphere network that seems to be dealing with specifically sort of grammatical aspects of that sentence. And is it that grammar side of things that makes human distinct from animals? Because obviously all animals do sort of communicate. Yes, uh, that is one of the current ways of thinking about it. Human language allows us to express pretty much anything. We can express past and future and possibility, and that has not been observed in any other animal species. So do we know when that ability evolved? (laughs) Um, In short, no. There's been, uh, well, there is lots of speculation on this. And one of the ideas is that it has something probably to do with tool usage, that the usage of complex tools would be something that would require complex thinking, allowing or triggering sort of language. And we know that in humans, um, there is a white matter tract that links frontal to temporal regions in the left hemisphere that is really relevant and necessary for, for language comprehension. And comparing the strength, consistency really, of those white matter tracts in, say, humans versus chimps or macaques shows that this is much more prominent in humans. If we were to go back in time, would we be able to understand the language that our ancestors were speaking? I suppose it's a question of how far back you go. I was looking up for for English, for instance. You would probably be able, you would be able to understand language from 1500 or so, but not language from 5th century. So languages are going to evolve and develop over time. There are going to be different influences that are feeding in and shaping how a particular language ends up looking. Well, I mean, it's a continuous process of development, obviously. But I think in, in the case of English language, you would not be able to understand Old English, so what's been spoken in, in, in 7th century. So some words might come and go. And we might never find out exactly how language started. But there's one thing we know for certain. The British will always be talking about tea. Emma Sackville there, speaking with Miriana Bosick and before her, Claire Dembry. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Kat Arney. Now, according to the World Health Organisation, the WHO, 36.7 million people around the world were living with HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, the agent that causes AIDS, at the end of 2015. And while rates of HIV are greatest in sub-Saharan Africa, it is still a global problem. In fact, the UK has one of the highest rates of new HIV diagnoses in Western Europe, particularly in London, and rates of new diagnoses there have been rising steadily until last year. Now, preliminary data from several clinics across London shows, on average, a 40% drop in new diagnoses over the past year. And HIV specialists think this could be down to a procedure called PrEP, short for Pre-Exposure Prophylaxis. 
This is where uninfected individuals take anti-HIV medication, which many people are currently obtaining online, to reduce the chances of them becoming infected if they do come into contact with the virus. We'll be hearing more about how PrEP works later in the programme, but first we turn to Greg Owens, who was diagnosed with HIV 18 months ago. He told Greer Jackson his story. I was in a seven-year relationship and engaged to be married to my ex-fiancé and came out of that relationship at the start of 2013. And I was flung into a scene that I wasn't familiar with. When I went into that relationship, there were no hookup apps, there were no chemsex parties. It was a a very different setup in London as to the the world I find myself in. Sorry, what's a chemsex? Oh, yeah, Chemsex is the use of party drugs um, and closely associated with sexual behaviour where they pretty much go hand in hand and you, um, it, it's, it's three specific drugs. It would be methadone, crystal meth and GHB and can be an extensive period of, you know, maybe one night into two or three days uh, long of partying and, and sex. So Blimey. Chemsex. So you came out of a seven year relationship into this. How, do, how was that? Yeah, it was not nice. Um, my ex-boyfriend, fiancé, um, our relationship actually disintegrated because he was diagnosed as HIV positive. For him, it was pretty much the end of his life as he knew it and our relationship as it existed, and he fell apart. So for me, uh, I was experiencing quite a lot of emotional trauma and, and significant life changes because of that and a lot of distress. So that coupled with the fact that I was flung onto a scene that I was very, very unaware and unprepared to deal with. I mean, for the first year, I was very much, because of my ex's experience, I was very much uh, incredibly adherent to condoms. But then the second year, I think what happened was I hit what I would call like a double dip depression. So I kind of got clear of the initial trauma. But then the reality of what my life was then and how drastically different it was. And it was a complete upheaval. Like, I didn't just lose my fiancé, I lost my flat, my cat. I I couldn't go to work, I just wasn't functioning properly. And as a result of that, my sexual risk-taking and my behaviours had changed. And I started to come out of that maybe dip of depression and started to assess where I was in my life and and my sexual behaviour and just kind of socially where I was and what I was doing and emotionally too. And I thought, I probably am not going to be able to address the behaviours at the moment. But what I can do is maybe think about PrEP. And then I go to Dean Street the next day to have a HIV test just to confirm that I'm definitely negative because I tested negative about 12 months before. Um, so I could definitely start PrEP safely. And like 20 minutes after arriving at the clinic, I was in the consultation room and I had the finger prick test and two dots came up. So it was a HIV positive diagnosis. So the irony (laughs) of eventually managing to kind of get a hold of PrEP um, and to start that, having finally decided that this was the right option for me and I was going to start being proactive and responsible to then have just missed the boat was a little bit mind-blowing, to be honest. And what went through your mind when you saw those those two dots? Since my ex's diagnosis, I'd been actively kind of campaigning as a HIV negative person, trying to dispel some of the myths and deconstruct some of the stigma around HIV. And I just sort of had a really bizarre, strange moment of pure clarity. And I thought, you know what, now is the time to put my money where my mouth is. Now I'm going to go and tell 8,000 people on social media that I got a HIV positive diagnosis. What was the reception you, you got from people? So I think I had 
within two or three hours, like 350 likes, 175 comments. And then when I opened my messaging inbox, I had like about 50 disclosures from people in my immediate network, in my extended network and people who I'd never met. And I couldn't believe even, (laughs) this sounds really weird, but even someone like me who was HIV aware and had worked sort of kind of very loosely on the peripheral of HIV awareness and campaigning, I was like, oh, I never would have thought that person was HIV positive. Or, oh my, it just goes to show you, like, we have a very strange perception of, of who gets HIV and who doesn't. And in actual fact, HIV does not discriminate. Anyone can become, anyone who has sex can become HIV positive. So for me, it was a very big learning curve. But also, I think I felt incredibly supported. Not one stigmatizing, judgmental, moralizing comment, nothing. And from that moment on, I think that was all that I needed to just kind of catapult me out into getting on with things. Mm, such a contrast, isn't it, to your ex's experience, isn't it? it um, you know, it's, in my diagnosis diaries, because I detailed every emotion and every feeling, and actually he sprung into my mind. At this point, we would have been split up uh, about two and a half years. And he was very much in my thoughts and in my feelings, I think. I, I, literally, I had a failed suicide attempt at the end of 2013, because of the distress and the trauma that I was under and experiencing from my ex. So I, and it, I was so confused about that. I was thinking, you know, I, I done, like I, I've, I've been a good gay. <laughs> I was committed to this relationship and I was invested in our future. And, you know, I, he was my priority and our relationship took precedent over everything else. And I've, you know, I've done all the things I'm supposed to do and I'm meant to do. Why is this horrible thing happening to me? And I couldn't make sense of it. But I'm incredibly grateful that I got through that experience and, and this suicide attempt was failed because in actual fact, when it came round and it landed firmly on my doorstep, I was able to take the learnings from that. And I have to say, if you experience something as painful as that, at some point in your future, if you're able to take something positive and are learning from it, it really does soften the sting that that leaves behind. So I'm grateful for that experience. Greg Owen. Now, also with us is Laura Waters. She's from the Mortimer Market Centre, which is a sexual health clinic in London, one of the centres that's been seeing a reduction in HIV diagnosis rates in the last year or so. Laura, first of all, can you tell us what is the distinction between HIV and AIDS? What are the two entities? HIV is a virus. It's an infectious particle. It stands for Human Immunodeficiency Virus. And it's an infection that's spread primarily through sex and it targets a type of white blood cell. Now, white blood cells are the cells in the body that are responsible for fighting infection. It enters a particular type of white blood cell called a CD4 cell. And the best way to describe these cells really is that they're like the conductors of an orchestra. If your whole immune system, which is lots of types of cells and proteins and chemicals, is an orchestra, the CD4 cell is a conductor. Now, HIV enters these cells, uses the cells to replicate itself, but destroys them in that process. And over time, it greatly damages the immune system, leaving somebody susceptible to serious infections, symptoms like diarrhea, weight loss and particular types of cancers. And it's that constellation of conditions that is AIDS, acquired immune deficiency syndrome. So many people with HIV never develop AIDS because we diagnose it and treat it before the immune system can be damaged enough to allow AIDS conditions to take hold. How long generally elapses between a person acquiring the infection and then developing those symptoms of AIDS, assuming that they don't get diagnosed and treated? 
How long it takes someone to develop AIDS will vary and it depends mainly on that individual's immune system which is governed mainly by their own genetics. So it can be anything from two or three years through to 10, 15 or even more years and there's a small proportion of people who actually keep the virus under control and remain quite healthy for decades. On average it will typically be between 5 and 10 years after getting the infection that people start to get sick. If HIV is an infection of the bloodstream and it's harboured by immune cells in the bloodstream. How does it come to be transmitted through sexual activity? Well, the virus itself, so although it replicates inside immune cells, it basically travels around every body fluid. It gets into every single part of the body. You can find it in spinal fluid, you find it in blood, you find it in the gut, and you find it in sexual fluids as well. So you find it in semen, you find it in vaginal fluids, and you find it in rectal fluids as well. So although it's replicating in immune cells, it's floating around the body everywhere. And when a person becomes infected, how would they know? So when people first get infected, it's a viral illness like any other viral illness. So many people develop non-specific viral symptoms, fevers, rash, high temperatures, enlarged lymph glands. But this may be dismissed as just a viral illness, which in many ways is correct. It's just that no one's thought to test for HIV. And at least half of people will have something that when they look back was a significant, more severe than usual viral flu-like illness. Then typically there'll be no symptoms at all until the manifestations of a damaged immune system start to become apparent. And if a person does suspect they might have contracted it and they come to a clinic like yours, how do you diagnose it? I mean, it depends on timing. So most clinics now use point of care tests. That's a finger prick or saliva test where you get an immediate result. But most of those tests use slightly older technology. So it can take up to 12 weeks for a test to show up as positive. So if someone was infected today with some of those point of care tests, it could be three months later before that shows up on those tests. If somebody has suspected early HIV, so they have symptoms consistent with early HIV, they've had a risk exposure to HIV, then we do a standard blood test where you take blood from a vein in the arm. That's sent to the lab where we do more detailed tests and more sensitive tests, and those will show up positive for most people within four weeks. Your clinic is one of the centres that's seen a very dramatic reduction in the numbers of cases being diagnosed. Put some numbers on it for us and also tell us why you think that is. So our clinic, the Mortimer Market Centre, has collected data along with three other big central London clinics and that's uh, 56 Dean Street, Homerton and Bart's Health. And we all saw a 40% reduction in new HIV cases in 2016 compared to 2015. Why we think that is, is a number of reasons. Now, the reason that's being most discussed is the advent of pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, so taking HIV drugs before an exposure to reduce the risk of getting HIV. And it's thought that's really led to this sudden dramatic downturn in new diagnoses. Other important factors are the fact that we have fewer and fewer undiagnosed people. So we know in gay men, who are the biggest risk group for new HIV in the UK, 
most infections come from people who don't know they have the virus. So these are undiagnosed people who are responsible for transmitting most of the new virus onwards. And actually, the undiagnosed proportion has come down. So now only 13% of people with HIV in the UK are estimated to not know their status. Now, that's still too high, but it's the lowest it's been in some time. So by testing and knowing your status, you are less likely to pass the virus on to somebody else. The other important factor is treatment. So people with HIV who are on treatment have a zero or close to zero chance of passing the virus on to sexual partners. And about 94% of people with HIV are on treatment and undetectable. So it's a combination PrEP, better diagnosis and the fact that people with HIV are on treatment that keeps the virus suppressed and means the risk of passing it on is very, very, very low. Laura, thank you very much. That's Laura Waters from Mortimer Market Centre. You are listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and Kat Arney. So today we are examining PrEP, the HIV prevention measure that looks like it could be responsible for this drop in new infections. So we've heard about it, but what is it and how does it work? We're joined now by Sheena McCormack from University College London. She's conducted a study called PROUD, investigating the effects that this drug could have. So hi, Sheena. Can you start by explaining what exactly PrEP is and how does it work? Hello, Kat. So PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis and prophylaxis is prevention and pre-exposure, I guess, is is self-explanatory. So it's prevention you take in advance of being exposed to HIV. And we are using, I think, as Chris mentioned, antiretroviral drugs, anti-HIV drugs um, as PrEP. There is only one drug at the moment that's licensed for use as PrEP, and that's a drug called Truvada. And it does exactly what Laura explained. It stops HIV multiplying, and that gives the body a chance to get rid of the infected cells when they're caught in, you know, in sexual fluids. And what are the side effects? So the side effects, we've used this drug for treatment for a long, long time, so we're already quite familiar uh, with the side effects, and it's actually very, very well tolerated. I mean, only about 5 or 10% of people will ask to, to change that drug, and they tend to be sort of indigestion side effects very early on. The only side effects I guess we worry about in people who are taking the drug who have HIV are the longer-term side effects in kidneys and uh, potentially reducing uh, bone density. Um, But PrEP is something that we anticipate people will take for a much shorter period of time, a sort of period of time like Greg explained when behaviours just changed in that that period before somebody uh, can get things together again. And it's very unlikely there are going to be side effects that really matter with shorter term uh, exposure. And what did you find in your study when you were looking at the effects of this drug and, and what were you doing there? So our study was a bit different to the ones that had gone before. So there'd been a study in gay men before that finished in 2010. They compared the PrEP drug Truvada to a dummy pill, to placebo, and they showed a 44% reduction in HIV, which was very exciting, but that is only partial protection. And something we were worried about in the broad community in the UK was if you gave people a pill that partially protected them, might it mean they then would abandon all other methods to reduce HIV? HIV infection, including condoms. And if you threw away the condoms, maybe 44% would drop to 20%. 
we had to do a study a different way where we had a control group that knew they weren't on PrEP and a group who were on PrEP who knew they were. So we randomized people to get PrEP straight away in the first year or to get it for the second year uh, after a year of no PrEP. And that gave us the chance to compare PrEP to no PrEP. And what we found, to our surprise, were two things. First of all, the rate of HIV was much, much higher than we had expected in those not on PrEP. It was 9% per year, and that's like 18 times higher than the general gay population. And PrEP reduced HIV by 86%, so much better than the dummy pill trial. As you say, it's not complete protection. So that this isn't sort of a, a chemical condom, is it? I mean, people can't just take it and go, I'm fine for everything now, let's party. Well, Kat, you know, it's funny thing. In our study, we only saw three infections in PrEP users. And in all of those individuals, it, it, the story sounded like they weren't taking the drug at the time of exposure. Although, obviously, HIV is not the only sexually transmitted infection that you can pick up. Exactly. It only protects you against HIV. And it's not absolutely perfect. I think it would be unreasonable to expect anything biological to give you absolutely perfect protection. But the number of breakthrough infections that we've seen with PrEP have really only been a handful so far. So it is extremely good biologically, but it still is going to depend on people taking it in a period of risk. And um, and as we heard from Greg, you know, he went to get tested so he could get it and then discovered he had HIV. Uh, quite briefly, is there a risk that uh people won't be able to get it because they are carrying the infection and then also giving it to people with the infection might get HIV strains that are resistant. So the biggest risk of that, if the virus is multiplying like mad, if you've got that acute infection that that Laura was describing uh, and you give a little bit of drug, then you do increase the chance of resistance uh, developing. So we want to test people, obviously, and make sure we know their status before starting PrEP. But the chance of somebody coming on the day being acutely infected is actually pretty low. And I have to say in the study, we didn't do that. We actually gave PrEP straight away and we didn't really see problems with following that particular path. Thank you very much. That's Sheena McCormack from University College London. Now, the NHS is going to soon start trialling Trivada, that is the drug that's used in PrEP, on 10,000 people to see how it might be best to roll out this PrEP programme. But... In the meantime, there are more than 655,000 gay and bisexual men in the UK, and that's way more than those 10,000 places. So in the absence of a vaccine, men are currently taking matters into their own hands, as Greg Jackson found out. I'm Will Nutland. I'm the co-founder of Prepster.info, and I'm also a social researcher at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So for people like me who want to start using PrEP right now, I have a couple of options. One of those options is to try and get a private prescription, so get a doctor to write a prescription for me. But that would cost me in the region of about £400 a month, so about £5,000 a year. And the other option is that I could buy a generic formulation of PrEP Online that's nine times cheaper than it would be for me to buy a private prescription. And when you say generic, what do you mean? So by generic PrEP, I mean exactly the same formulation of PrEP that is provided and manufactured by the drug company Gilead. So Gilead have an international patent on the drug Trivada, but under international laws, countries are allowed to produce a generic formulation of drugs 
if that country has a particular health emergency or a health crisis and can't afford to buy the patented form of that drug. So places like India, there are drug companies there that are producing exactly the same formulation of drug, but on a generic formulation. And it's perfectly legal in the UK for someone like me to buy that generic formulation of PrEP, so long as it's for personal use. So it may be legal, but it does sound kind of shady, the fact that it has to go three different countries to get through customs. Why is that? Well, yes, I mean, whenever we talk about people buying generic pills online, of course it raises some red flags for people. So that's why prepster.info, working in coalition with our sibling website, I Want Prep Now, have worked together to put some safeguards in place. And broadly, we are looking at three sets of safeguards. The first is that we've done test purchases to make sure that my debit card or my credit card isn't getting ripped off when I go onto those websites. The second safeguard is to make sure that the drugs actually arrive at the address that we've been given. The third safeguard, and probably the most important safeguard, is to make sure that the drug that I'm putting in my body is what it actually says on the bottle. I want to make sure that I am taking PrEP and it's going to protect me against HIV rather than taking something that is a fake drug. So colleagues at 56 Dean Street have now done more than 250 tests on different people who've been taking generic PrEP, and there's absolutely no evidence that from this half a dozen websites that that we've looked at that there's any fake drug. So we are fairly confident, as confident as we can, that people who are buying drug from these featured websites are buying the real thing. That's really promising and reassuring to know. But I wonder why you would prefer to use something like PrEP over other methods, say condoms. I think the question is, why would somebody want to take PrEP is a, is a very interesting um, question. I'm a public health doctor. I've worked in HIV prevention for more than 20 years. I've worked in some of the UK's leading HIV organisations. And despite huge amounts of money and some fantastic work that's been done to drive down HIV incidents in the UK, HIV incidents has been increasing for the last 10 years or more. And we know that condoms have been incredibly effective at reducing tens of thousands of HIV infections in the UK. But the strategies that have been used for the last five or 10 or more years aren't pushing HIV infections down across the whole of the population. So I think what's exciting about PrEP is that all of the evidence is showing that if PrEP is highly targeted at those people who are most likely to be involved in HIV exposure, then not only would HIV be prevented in those individuals, but if enough people start using PrEP, as a nation, we can finally start to see HIV diagnosis going down. So from my public health perspective, I think PrEP is hugely exciting in building up the health of our nation. But why do you personally prefer it? I've always lived with a a sense of fear that I could become infected with HIV even when I am consistently using condoms. So for me, it allows me to have sex without fear, without anxiety and without stress. And for lots of us, we haven't been able to do that for a very long time. Do you think this is the ticket out? So I don't think PrEP on its own will be uh, what leads to the eradication of HIV. I think PrEP, if it's used in combination with continued condom use, with treatment as prevention, and by that I mean that people who are already infected with HIV 
are offered treatments to suppress their viral loads and therefore are unable to pass on HIV um, as soon as possible after diagnosis. If we make sure that there is good sexual health education across our nations, including good sex education in schools, if all of these things are combined together, then I think we have a really good chance of massively preventing new HIV infections. But let us not forget that we already have about 100,000 people living with HIV across the UK. And it's really important to make sure that their health is maintained and that those people are supported as people living with HIV. Will Nutland. And uh, also still with us are Laura Waters and Sheena McCormack. Sheena, we were talking about cost there. How is the expense for doing this, the idea of giving PrEP to people, how is that being defended by the NHS? Well, that's something, of course, the NHS looks at very closely with any new drugs that are being introduced. And actually, the cost effectiveness of PrEP is really clear in the long term, um, the usual economic timeline of 80 years. But inevitably, the NHS is pretty concerned about their budget in the short and medium term and what might have to be sacrificed to pay for anything new. So the models that the NHS reviewed, uh, the cost-effectiveness models of PrEP, suggested that the only way that the NHS could really be confident of PrEP being cost-effective in the short term was if the price of the drug was reduced from its current list price, which is, is pretty high because Truvada at the moment, of course, remains branded. But that branding uh, will end shortly, we believe, and then there will be several versions of Truvada made by generic manufacturers. There'll be competition and the price should be coming down. Uh, thing is, though, Sheena, why is the NHS funding this at all? When we were researching this programme, a number of people put it to us. They were unwilling, actually, to come and talk about it for reasons no best to them. But they were saying, why is the NHS funding this at all? What's the justification? One person said, well, if I had a drinking uh, hobby, I wouldn't expect the NHS to pay for me to have a taxi home to prevent me from drink driving and potentially placing myself and others at risk. So why do we pay for this form of personal recreation and not another? The NHS makes decisions very carefully on two characteristics, clinical effectiveness and cost effectiveness. We've shown this drug is incredibly effective at preventing HIV, which is an extremely expensive infection to manage because it's it's a tablet a day or more for a lifetime and uh, potential complications through ageing with HIV that we perhaps haven't fully anticipated yet. But HIV is very costly for the NHS, so obviously if you can save HIV infection, it makes sense. And as I mentioned before, PrEP is something that people would take for a short period to support them through behaviour change, um, just in the same way that we support people who have alcohol dependency or drug dependency. We support them with talking therapy uh, or other means through their behaviour change. That seems entirely appropriate. But the decisions are made on clinical effectiveness and cost effectiveness. It's actually just as simple as that. And looking beyond the shores of our own country for a minute, this is a global problem. The bulk of the problem sits in Africa. Therefore, situations like we have here and solutions like we're looking at here probably are beyond the reach of those people. 
Well, you'd think so, but actually PrEP is being rolled out in Kenya and South Africa. Um, so there are PrEP programs. In some cases, they're targeted at particular populations where the rates of HIV are extremely high. Um, and in others, it's a little bit more generalized. And you're trying to take advantage of people's motivation to help themselves, whether that's to come and get tested for HIV and to go on to treatment uh, or to prevent themselves, as I say, during a risky period of their life. Indeed. And Laura, last uh, thoughts from you? I think that PrEP combined with other strategies, we, we really do have the opportunity now. And I really do think the figures that that we've described in London, we've got the opportunity to, to really turn this around and, and eradicate new HIV in, in places like the UK. And I think that the, the people who criticise PrEP, who are you know concerned that why should we support people's bad behaviour, there are many, many conditions that the NHS spends millions of pounds on that are driven by behavioural choices that others may not think the best. And Sheena's mentioned them, smoking and, and drug use and alcohol, etc, etc. And I think the days we start rationing or limiting people's access to really effective prevention and effective treatment based on the behaviour they've taken part in is, is a really dangerous and slippery slope. So it's, it works. HIV infections were going up. They seem to be coming down and we should have access to PrEP on the NHS without a doubt. Laura Waters from Mortimer Market Centre and also Sheena McCormack from University College London. Thank you very much. And now it's time for Question of the Week with Greer Jackson. Here is David's Cosmic Quandary. If we put a mirror millions of light years away and reflected back the Earth, could we see what Earth looked like millions of years ago? A million years ago, only very early species of humans had begun to evolve, and much debate surrounds what they were doing. Like, could they control fire? And did they have language? By putting a mirror in space, could we find out? I put this to Cambridge's Anna Harahan. First, though, let's just unpack this astronomical question. What is a light year? So when we look up at the night sky, we're actually seeing the stars as they were sometime in the past. Because the light that's reaching us from these stars today has left the stars possibly hundreds or thousands of years ago. Does that mean then, if there are some aliens a million light years away and they happen to glance in Earth's direction, they wouldn't actually see us here talking? They'd see Earth a million years ago. Exactly. That's because the light took a million years to get there. That's assuming they have light-sensitive eyes and use them as we do. If we could magically put a mirror a million light years away in space, then in theory, if we were able to reflect an image of the Earth that we could see back on Earth, the light would have left the Earth two million years ago. OK, David, it's theoretically possible, but there's one big hitch here. We can barely image planets 100 light years away, let alone if you times that distance by 10,000. But the other thing to contend with is the mirror itself. The size of the mirror that we would need would be absolutely huge. And I haven't actually done the calculation but it is possible that the size of the mirror would be so big and it would be so massive that it could actually collapse to form a black hole. So it's definitely not technically feasible at the moment, but in theory, we could actually look back into the past. 
There you have it, David. I hope that answers your question. Next week, we'll be getting our knickers in a twist over this. Hi, I'm Stephen from Cornwall. And my question is this. I always seem to go for a pee within 30 minutes of drinking a cup of tea. And when I'm using the toilet, I often say to myself, is that the same cup of tea I'm getting rid of? How much of that drink was absorbed into my body? So if I go for a pee within an hour of drinking a cup, is it the same liquid I'm getting rid of? Well done to listener Curtis Tory, who wrote in with the correct answer to last week's question. And if you think you can offer Stephen some relief, you can email Chris at nakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or even join the debate on the forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that is it for this week. Thank you very much to George Mills and Grad Jackson for production. And do join us at the same time next week when we'll be asking what the impacts of climate change will be for people inheriting this planet in the future. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.